This is the next edition of the Firmware Files. This is the second part of being the son of survivors. Um, in my history and how mine connects to now. As I got older, I went to organizational meetings of people my parents' age who were also survivors. I saw people with numbers on their arms, which I learned were put on them by the Nazis for record keeping. So my millennial friends who are so arrogantly dismissive to what I think, I don't like tattoos, and a generational thing. This is why I don't like them. It reminds me of how it triggers this horror and the ugliness. I would go to these meetings and see the joys on their faces when they met the children of other survivors. I remember getting the most painful pitches, pinches with half of my face between these two fingers out of joy of these, of these people as to what I represented to them. They would cry, but after a while, the pain was so great for me that I literally, they literally lifted me out of the air. So when I got my left cheek, I'd kick my shin with my right leg and the other way around. But I understood why they did it. I represented why they survived in the first place. Years later, when I backpacked the Euro through Europe and Israel, and I met people who would share their, their family stories, especially in Israel, when I told mine, I became a family member. People treated me and my, and my travel companion with such love and warmth, wanting to hear stories about my parents, hungry to hear I cry and I remember how hungry they wanted to hear these stories, to know to know if there was any connection from 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 maybe a family member, maybe a neighbor, somebody from their hometown. I was overwhelmed by this, but I understood and what I represented. And even now, even reading this, I cry knowing about what those connections must have meant and what they went through and what their survival meant. We were living proof. We were the living proof. I also heard the word Schindler, not knowing what it meant. But as an adult, I did, and met people from the list, and surprisingly, people who lived next door to my parents when they moved to Florida. And I got, I got reacquainted with some of them. It's like they were my childhood family members. People kept asking me why I didn't want to see the movie about Schindler. My answer was, I knew these people on a first-name basis. It's odd how people think they need, they know what's best for you when it comes to this topic. I mean, I wonder if this happened to other children of survivors. Again, as I got older, that this was about them and the need to anxiously deal with something so dark. A few years early in my childhood, I saw the Eichmann trials which were being covered on TV. And all the ghastly images I saw, which is something a child should have not been exposed to. These are things that I should have been shielded from and protected from seeing. And I'm sure it had a horrific effect on me. This is another area where I feel survivors, including my own, failed as parents. And maybe this is due to their own trauma and lack of boundaries, which I see as covert abuse. I can't look at images now because of the pain it triggered in me. What was so odd about this was that years later, I remember a play, The Man in the Glass Booth, where Eichmann was played by Werner Klemperer, who years later played the buffoon Colonel Clink in Hogan's Heroes, which to this day, I don't understand how it was made or found to be funny. 
Prisoners of war camps were not hardly comical. Sergeant Schultz eventually became my analogy for present-day politicians who stood by and watched bad things happen for their own preservations. People who I detest the most. Mike Pence is one. Another story, I know nothing, I see nothing, which is not very funny when you realize what was being denied. It was a prisoner of war camp. The movie Stalag 13 or The Great Escape, these were not funny. I wondered if Hogan's heroes somehow, somewhere, gave permission to trivialize the Holocaust. Getting back to my family now, meals were also an adventure. I never knew what to expect from my father. Even as a kid, he would bring home the New York Post for me, literally giving it to me as he walked as he walked in. In those days, it was a great tabloid purchased by liter- a literary giant, Dorothy Ship, and it became the home of another great New Yorker and hero, Pete Hamill, which, again, is another story. I love the fact that he did that, but Neil started to become a scene. He would take food out of my plate and give it to the family dog. And when I got angry, he usually did... I became the crazy one. After a while, it became the point where we didn't have meals together. But I also wondered how, when he was going through the experiences, that he struggled with finding food, finding extra food, which he did for my mother. But I'm just wondering how that affected how he saw food. I was never sure of that, but I could only speculate. As a kid, he would leave for work very early. My father was a tailor, a Schneider, again, for those who know Yiddish. He would come into my parents' room to make sure that he said goodbye to my mom, to myself, and my younger brother. One day he forgot something and saw my mom and me hugging. I had fallen back to sleep. I don't know what he saw, but he started to scream. And I remembered his face and how grotesque and, and terrifying. But I don't remember any of the words. That was the first time I dissociated, the first trauma, the first abuse and I became the hypervigilant enemy. This was just the beginning. I never went back during those morning times. To this day, and for other reasons, I still dissociate. It's also something I've written about in a pamphlet, something I wrote about the overly active child, where I show how trauma, particularly children who had been traumatized, not that they're not paying attention, but they're dissociating from being triggered. All the time this was going on, I saw how hard my dad was working, the long hours, and I actually went to his workplace, a factory that was also a sweatshop. Between his smoking, which he stopped when I was about 12, after our doctor warned him that he wanted to see how his kids grow up and the conditions in the shop, my dad didn't live too long after his retirement. Something I did appreciate, though, was that he struggled as to how how to express his feelings. But he would come home with swatches of material and look at me and say, let me make you a piece. And I still have a burnt orange corduroy suit that he made for me. But it still it still is a trigger for me. I would take a bath while he, while he shaved. And if I seemed to say the wrong thing, he would dunk me. His anger was almost a, a rage. I've been a scuba diver for almost 20 years, over 100 dives. Wrecks, night dives, wall dives. And a few years ago, I started to get panic attacks underwater. And I couldn't breathe for no apparent reason. I knew all the techniques. I tried everything. Hypnosis, medication. 
I checked with the, the Professional Association of Diving Instructors. There was no explanation for it. For me, I think it had to do with those dunks catching up with me. The dissociation started with the water, and I haven't been diving for the last few years. Trauma reared its ugly head. I was fortunate that it had waited that long. I was, it was not that unusual. Luckily, the works on trauma by people like Dr. Kate Hudgens and others in recent years have made our knowledge of trauma clearer and more accessible. Yet, things continued unpredictably. The same man who brought me cake when I was studying in the living room was the same person who chased me around the home with a belt. I was able to dodge him and I would get to the, to the bathroom and lock the door, climb out the window and run away. I knew the alcoves in NBC Studios where I could hide, another story. Sometimes I run away to Coney Island and hang out. One time I sneaked into the 64 World's Fair and after a while, this didn't, this, this didn't work anymore. I went to a friend's house and, I, my, and my family called. I only had to come home and knowing that it was safe. My mom stood guard as I got in. When I got to college, I learned that this kind of behavior was typical in addictive homes and also in, in families of, of children of survivors and that it had to be to, be, to keep a safe home. It was the perpetrator who later apologized. One day I got so angry that I pushed back and he fell down some steps to our, into our house. When I needed more time to finish college, I knew it was time to leave. <laughs> 